that's actually a story that makes the unpleasant more palatable. You say, okay, it's unpleasant, but won't be there so so long, and it would be unpleasant to sit here cool, so all the better. But there's a flavor of unpleasant. Uh, sometimes when you uh, walk along uh, a street and you walk by a pizza parlor, if you like pizza, or a bakery, and you go by, and there's a good smell wafting out, you know, all of a sudden it occurs to you, I'm hungry. Huh. I, I, there's a pizza parlor right here. Or uh, if you like pizza and if you like that smell, then that's an unpleasant thing. So here's a smell, it's pleasant. Then you say, oh, pizza. Oh, right. What time is it? Could I go eat pizza now? I'll go. That there are, the, the flavors are experienced. Some are unpleasant, some are pleasant. Some are neutral, and what the Buddha taught about neutral experiences is that we mostly don't notice them. I don't actually think, I, I, was, I, I remember saying, but I think I was wrong, there aren't so many neutral experiences. We mostly uh, decide right away if we like it or don't like it. But I think that's, that's inaccurate. I think, I, I, I think what I'm deciding is there are just so many things that I don't notice because they don't one way or another trip my attention, unpleasant or unpleasant. If they're neutral, I don't have to do anything about them, and I'm a little, I probably space them out a little bit and um, don't pay attention to them. Okay, they don't need my attention. Okay, they don't need attention. It might be a little bit of aversion in that, or not sure, thinking about it. But certainly pleasant and unpleasant. So here's Buddha says, we meet things uh, and experiences in life that are uh, pleasant and uh, they, uh, they rouse us up because we know it's pleasant. And sometimes they inspire a certain amount of uh, desire in us. Uh, and sometimes it's a healthy desire. It's pizza parlor, it's lunchtime, not allergic to wheat or any of the stuff. And then it's a wholesome desire. Okay, you can do it. Sometimes it's someone else's lunch or someone else's stuff or someone else's something that you can't have. They say, okay, but then they brought that great lunch. We're soon going to eat lunch. They brought that great lunch. I wonder where they got that great lunch. I didn't get such a great lunch. <laughs> Next time when I come on another day long, I'm going to really get a great lunch. I didn't really think about this lunch. Why well, didn't bring a lunch altogether? That was a dumb thing. Why didn't I bring a lunch? You know, the, the mind can do all kinds of stuff about somebody else's lunch. And it could also look and think, that's a great lunch. Good for them. They're having a great lunch. May they enjoy it. Next time, I'm bringing a banquet. You know, that, it, can, it can actually be attentive to the, to the lust arising and turn it into something wholesome and make the mind at ease about it. So it's not about, as I might have thought originally, so quietening the mind and composing it so that the mind can't tell the difference between pleasant and unpleasant and neutral and everything becomes like oatmeal. It's not that. It's about being able to tell the difference between pleasant and unpleasant and notice what's happening in between and not space it out so that you can respond to it in some way. And the responses that... that uh, that are part of the teaching on Brahma Viharas is that when we meet a pleasant experience, something that someone else is having, not us, it's very hard not to have envy or jealousy arise, to be able to say, oh, I do have envy and jealousy. I wish I had that, but I don't. May they enjoy it next time I will. To really notice it, 
take care of it in yourself. Don't say it's all the same to me. It's not all the same to me. But to notice that and to treat myself with kindness, oh, let's make the best, okay? Um, the teaching of, around meeting something that's uh, unpleasant, meeting um, a situation where someone's in pain, someone is needy, um, situations where we sometimes want to look away, sometimes reading the newspaper. I decided this week that my new practice, because I caught myself reading a headline this week, that I knew if I read that from the headline, that if I read the article, I would really become mad because it, I, that it was a political event that the headline gave the clue about, and I could hear my mind starting to tell itself stories once again. And I sort of went with that for a while. And afterwards, I realized that was very, that wasn't a skillful move. That I could read the headline and I could say to myself, this is going to be an article that's upsetting, potentially upsetting, because something I'm not approving of is going to be happening. So let me decide in advance that I will write an op-ed piece or I write a letter to the press democrat this afternoon. So let me now read this piece with a kind heart. We're not fighting with it. Let me read this with benevolence rather than with aversion. Let me feel badly for this world that so much needs wiser decisions. I feel compassion for myself having to read this and for everybody who's doing this. It's possible to feel appreciation for other people's great lunch and compassion for everybody's bad fortune or what I, what I might think is an unfortunate circumstance. That appreciation and compassion are variations of benevolence and they keep the heart steady. You can tell yourself, I don't like this. I'm so sad for us that we all have to do this. How can I address it? I do like this. I'm so sad <laughs> that we don't all have it. How can I really appreciate this and look forward to it myself? It's all about, I think, keeping the equanimity in the heart so I can continue to see clearly and not put things out of my mind. I think that's the fourth of the, Bra of the Brahma Viharas, which are friendliness, con uh, 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 compassion, uh, appreciation and equanimity. The fourth of them, which is equanimity, I think means can I stay balanced enough not to fall asleep to things? Because I really appreciate everything that's there. Can I keep that vision profonde or wide vision, if not profound? Can I keep enough things in it to see what's true? There's a famous Zen story about uh, that I have had a checkered career with because I alternatively like it and don't like it over the years. I think in the moment, I'll, I'll know when I tell it to you how I'm feeling about it today. <laughs> but I think good, otherwise I probably wouldn't be telling it to you. The Zen story about a Zen master uh, in, uh, uh, in the time of the samurai, at a time that uh, a particularly fierce warrior uh, uh, with his samurai band was making his way up the particular through the area where that uh, Zen master lived with his students in a monastery. And the news that this particularly terrifying 
warrior was coming through uh, frightening people and killing them in his path caused all the people to flee in the path of his arrival, including all the people in this village, including all the monks in the monastery, including uh, excluding this, the abbot who stayed. So all the monks have fled. And uh, the story is that the uh, samurai comes in and brandishes his sword, and here's a Zen master sitting on his zafu uh, with equanimity, and the Zen master says, uh, how is it that you're here? Don't you know that I'm the sort of man that can run you through with my sword without batting an eye? And the Zen master is supposed to have said back, and don't you know that I'm the sort of man that could be run through by a sword without batting an eye? Ooh. So, what do you think about that story? I already told you I have a checkered career with it. When you hear it, what do you think? I want to know what happened. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened right away. What's your name? Lynn. Lynn, I'll tell you what happened right away. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of you. What else, Jim? Thank you, Jim. I just think it's a a, a beautiful metaphor that you know of. Uh, I, I, I the only word that's in my head is goal, but it's not necessarily the goal. It's a state of being, of because we meet that every day. Uh huh. You know that we can be run through by people's actions, words, and uh-huh. that it's the place of the heart to want to cultivate. Very sweet. You can run, be, that's, I'm try, what's your name? Mayor. Mayor. I'm trying to think about, that's a very interesting uh, vision to think about. We can get run through by people's actions and words all the time and to be able to have equanimity about it's a metaphor like stuck in a wall. Yeah. You can get run through by someone's actions and there's someone's words and how to stay steady around it. What else do you think about? Yeah. It makes me wonder where equanimity and non-attachment meet. Well, I think, what's your name? Dolores. Dolores. See, that was actually one of the questions that, one of the reasons that I said I've gone back and forth on that story uh, I had the sense earlier in my first hearings of the story, and maybe it's because it's 30 years later and I'm just 30 years older, that there was a certain amount of detachment in that original story. I thought that myself. I thought, you know, it sounds a little bit like that Zen master is indifferent about whether or not living or dying. And I, I am not indifferent about living or dying. You know, I know that I'm going to die at some point, and I don't know sooner or later, but I love being alive, you know. And uh, so I, th- I think I'll, uh, I'll mostly feel bad when I'm dying, and I'll be sad about leaving my friends or whatever. I don't know what I'll be, but I think. And it does have an aura of detachment around that story. I decided more recently I hold that story differently because um, first I began to think, when you really know that you are faced with death, you have two possibilities, either struggling or not. 
And if your wisdom is so secure that struggling augments suffering, that even in the moment that someone kills you, even you want to stay alive, that you could do it with the least suffering possible, is how I began to think about this. I certainly was thinking about it a lot with uh, with my friend Martha, who just died this week, because we talked about this a lot. She said, I, I do not want to die. This is a very crappy situation, she she would say. And I, and I would agree, it is. You know, She's a young woman. She was not 63. She would have been 63 next month. Um, and she said, you know, sometimes I talk about, I think to myself, why me? You know, it's a thing to think about. She says, and sometimes I think about, why not me? It happens to somebody, you know. There are people in the world who have pancreas cancer. And her father had it before her, so maybe it's genetic. But she said, when I think to myself, why not me? I feel better about it. I think, why me? I'm more upset about it. She said, and I do not want to die. Given my druthers, I don't want to die. But if you think about, but if I, but in the moment of the why me, I have more struggle about it. So I wonder if it's a, you know, Zen stories tend to have a certain amount of detachment about here. I take it out of the realm of life and death. Here's another Zen story that's the same thing, except it's not about life and it's not about death. It's about birth. Uh, in, a, in a legendary place in Japan, uh, a woman has a child, and uh, a, an unmarried woman has a child, and there is no one who speaks up as the child's father. And uh, the uh, townspeople take the child up to the monk living in a little monastery, little hut by himself up on the mountain, solitary monk, and knock, knock, knock on his door and say... Uh, we know, because the mother told us that you are the father of this child, so you need to take care of him. So they pass him the baby, and he says, is that so? He takes the child. Three years later, the errant father of the child, who has fled before, comes back to the town, takes up with that woman again, claims the child as his, and the same townspeople come up. They do knock, knock, knock. And say, we hear it's not the child. That child isn't yours. You need to give it back to us now so that he can grow up with his parents. And the story is that the monk says, is that so? And he gives them back, the baby. Now, okay, it's not about death. Now it's about something else. What do you make of that story? You have a feeling about it? <laughs> it's non-attachment. Huh? It's non-attachment. It's um, it's non-attachment. You know, does anybody here have the thought, but wait a minute, he took care of it three years. Anybody had that thought here? You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And he took care of it. It's not fair. <laughs> it's not compassionate. It's not fair. What's well, not compassionate? To the child. Well, it's not compassionate. It's not compassionate to the child. It's not compassionate to the monk. It's not fair. It's not the... Huh? Yeah. Could could have that level of understanding or non-attachment to say, oh, okay, yeah. Well, you know, it is extraordinary. One of the things that I think about a lot, here we are back to 
life and death is uh, uh, we all have heard the tapes of people making phone calls from the planes that went down on 9-11. And they all knew what was happening. And everybody said, I love you, take care of yourself, take care of the children. Nobody said, I never got over that you weren't nice to me or (laughs) I didn't like your mother or any of those things. That when the chips are down, people see this is what's happening. When people die, they say, I'm sorry for whatever pain I caused you. Even if it's the last minute they didn't talk to somebody for 30 or 40 years, in the last minute they say, I'm sorry. It's like it straightens out the mind when it is focused. So it's, uh, maybe both of those stories are about uh, dramatic situations in a life because they focus the mind. I think to myself, Let's go back to that silly story I told you about, the not silly because someone died on that flight, about my own mind staying in such a, you know, 24-hour over some offense, which I honestly do not remember what it was. And I think to myself, it, I, what I really want is for my mind to stay in working order when it's not a dramatic situation. I don't want to have somebody have to die or something happen in order to wake me up. What's going to wake me up just like this? Actually, presumably, the contemplative practice that we're doing is going to wake us up. Because there's three more things. I know that I gave you a list of four of these and four of these. The Buddha liked to teach in lists, and it makes it easier. It was an oral tradition for two or three hundred years at least before anybody wrote anything down. So I like to do that too, and the lists are good. What the Buddha taught is that the practice of mindfulness led to seeing clearly three things that are true. The three things that are true universally of every moment of experience is that it's temporal. Whatever it is is temporal. That this life is temporal, this experience, this breath is temporal. When you sit and and you pay attention to your breath in and out, if you really pay attention, past the story of I'm breathing in and out is the story of this breath isn't going to happen again. And this breath is recycling the same oxygen that Mozart breathed. And this breath, in order for it to happen, depends on the fact that the trees on this earth are still green enough to recycle the carbon dioxide back into oxygen so that I can breathe it. And this breath, in order for it to happen, depends on my lungs being viable enough to still do that process. And it also depends on my kidneys still functioning to be able to get rid of the waste out of the body. For this breath to happen is a complete miracle. And it's temporal. Every one of those conditions could change in any moment. So if I pay attention, I can see, first of all, temporality in every experience. This breath, this breath, this breath, this breath can see in every experience that there's the the possibility of suffering when there is clinging in the mind and not suffering when there's no clinging in the mind. That's why I said before, you know, if if you're doing attention to the breath and there's something conflictual about it, like maybe you have, maybe something with your body doesn't breathe as fully or maybe you have some lung problem, don't do that, do something else. 
really what we're conditioning is not the ability to breathe, but the ability for the mind to be at ease so that it can grok, really, what's the truth of things. And the truth of things is that when we accept them, we are really free of suffering. And when we struggle with them, we're not. So that really is the second of those, that suffering is, that clinging is suffering. Clinging is a funny word that um, I, I'm always thinking of, of, of the plastic wrap that I, you know, put around uh, leftover food. Uh, clinging is, a, and it's a translation from the word tanha, which is really craving. It means not being um, satisfied with the situation just as it is, needing to have it otherwise. You know, there's a gospel uh, uh, I can't remember. Maybe the name of the song is A Satisfied Mind. But it certainly is the refrain of a gospel song that I like a lot. You search the world over, there's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. And that what we're really trying to do is to cultivate a mind that is satisfied. It's okay. One of my teachers says his favorite mantra is, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> My friends and I have decided now as we're getting older that when we talk to you, we have a secret code and say, how are you? You say, good enough. <laughs> and so that's a, that's a catchphrase for, you know, things are, don't work exactly the way they used to, but good enough, good enough. At this stage, it's good enough. But to be able to say this is good enough, it's good enough. I don't have any quarrels with it. There was somebody, some noted Buddhist teacher whose who's dying phrase was, uh, thank you very much, I have no complaints. That would be a great thing to go out saying, I have no complaints. Because the, the, there isn't a complaint department. You know, <laughs> complaints are futile. Nothing will fix it. No returns and no complaint department. You, you know, you get it, you have to play it as it lays. But someday we'll write a book of totally banal dharma. Like, like, play it as it lays, and there is no complaint department, you know. Um, if he wanted it otherwise, he got to go to another planet. Make the best. <laughs> Get a grip. <laughs> That's so the second is things are complicated when you struggle with them. To be able to know them and encounter them and relate to them with a kind and attentive heart or mind. The word in Pali for heart and mind is the same. The third of the things that people hope to realize on some deeply transformative level, things are temporal, struggling is a result of uh, struggle. Now, suffering is a result of struggle. The third is that everything is interrelated. Everything has to do with something else. Nothing arises ex nihilo, really. That there are causes and conditions. Sometimes the causes and conditions are so, or maybe all the time, the causes and conditions are so vast. Who can know? It's really an understanding of karma in a certain way. If you think about the experience of just sitting and breathing, and sometimes when I sit and I breathe, I just feel comfortable. And I feel like this is a, a, it's like a moment of uh, validation of the third noble truth, that peace is possible. 
It's not a bit because of something or in spite of something. It's just a moment of peace. Peace is possible. I say, oh, look at that. That's true. Peace is possible. And if I remember in that moment, sometimes if I sit and I feel really good about it, just peaceful body, peaceful mind, I think to myself, I give myself a little test. See, well, really, how peaceful are you? Think about <laughs> this and this. This grandchild who has this and this learning problem in school, you want to get upset about that? I said, no. <laughs> Everybody will take care of it. It's just what it is. Some people have X and some people have Y. It's not that you, not that I'm, not that I'm indifferent to it, but you take care of it. That peace is possible, not because the life is fine. It's just because the life is the life, and the mind is fine. Then peace is possible, and it can do the life, which is just what it is. There's another way in which that awareness that. Uh, Things are what they are just because of myriad. Who can know? The Buddha said that karma is one of the six imponderables. You know, just uh, the the complications of it are so enormous that if you if I sometimes when I'm sitting and breathing, and I'm aware that I don't breathe, we just sit here, and breath goes in and breath goes out and breath goes in. I don't have to be thinking breathe, breathe, breathe. Just it goes in and it goes out. It'll continue to go in and out for the uh, however long this body is viable. One of the things that I sometimes think about uh, again is because is that it's going in and out because there's enough green out there still to process the carbon dioxide. And I think that the fact that it's going in and out depends on recycling or using up less trees. And so I, I think to myself, uh, maybe I really don't need the newspaper every day. Maybe I could read it online. And maybe I really do have to be even more scrupulous about recycling. Because everything has to do with everything. Like this breath depends on forests and on them remaining viable. That the point of, of attention for me, the point of paying attention is so much more than the the personal, physical, or mental ease of of this body and this life. Sometimes people wonder about how do you make the switch from personal practice to um, activist practice. Uh, you know, we are all activists in different ways, but I don't think it's possible to do this kind of practice and to wake up and see why how everything depends on everything and not to be completely concerned with the well-being of the world, the well-being of the very planet, and the well-being of all the people in the world. That it's really not possible to dichotomize, say, well, I will sit here and that. That actually isn't equanimity. It has a little bit of indifference to it, but equanimity is really seeing the, the, the way in which Confusion not only complicates my life, but everybody's life. I think that the, uh, and, and the life of the planet. And I think it's the seeing of that that really um, augments the dedication to benevolence. So if you go back to where I started to talk about the Buddha who sat down and radiated a field of benevolence around him. It's both to allow equanimity to continue so that he can see what's true, 
but having seen what's true, that the only response to it is benevolence. It's the, the only response that uh, is the uh, redemptive response to the degree of suffering in our own mind and in the planet. That really, the, 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 a moment of mindfulness is a moment of compassionate kindness, of, of compassion. It's a moment of recognizing what's true without complicating it. I think if we see clearly, then we don't complicate it. I think I came to where I wanted to be around that whole circle. So what I would like for us to do, do you want to stand up for a minute before you sit and meditate? Stand up, don't talk. Just stand up and stretch a little bit. So when you're ready, there's a two-minute primer on the difference between concentration meditation and mindfulness meditation and why mindfulness, how mindfulness contains concentration in it. What we tried to do before is be with the experience of the breath as one consistent neutral experience, for those people for whom it was neutral, with the hope that that would compose the mind. Some people do one-pointed meditation, picking the breath or picking one particular phrase for the whole of their practice career, and that's a fine thing to do. Uh, My actual deep belief is that that actually can continue to so um, compose the mind while keeping it awake, if you do it properly, that the same uh, insights of mindfulness could accrue from that kind of concentration practice as well. What the Buddha taught in in the Sermon on Mindfulness, on the Foundations of Mindfulness, starts from a concentration practice on the breath to compose the mind and now says, now that the mind is composed, let's pay attention to other things that are happening. So it's based on concentration, but instead of continuing with concentration, it builds a foundation of concentration and it says, okay, now let's look around and see what else is going on, what else is going on, what else is going on. The what else is going on are three specific what else's. One of them is, first of all, what's going on with your breath and your body? That we already did. 
And it says, what do we, is it pleasant and unpleasant or neutral is the next part. But let's notice about what's going on. Let's notice about that. With the hope, I think, of noticing, first of all, that pleasant changes to unpleasant changes to neutral, you forget about it. So you see all those same characteristics of experience in pleasant, unpleasant. Also to notice how the mind gets carried away with pleasant. Oh, I wonder how I can get that. Or how the mind gets carried away with unpleasant. How am I going to get rid of this? And just the, the most, well we'll, well, we'll have it come up in the discussion afterwards. I don't have to even tell you what's going to happen. You'll tell me. But pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It also moves the attention to what's going on in the mind. That's just what's going on in the physical body. But what's going on with the mind? With the hope that we'll see those same characteristics of coming and going and the nature of suffering and uh, the contingency of things, how one thing leads to another leads to another, with what's going on in the mind, just as it does with what's going on in the body. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness is just the awareness of how things actually are. I told it to you before, like all of a sudden, the awareness that peace really is possible in this very life, in this very body, that suddenly people are sitting or walking and they feel quite okay. The world is in trouble. My life is in trouble. But my mind is okay. I'll take care of it. I'll I'll manage. I'll manage gracefully. Those are called the foundation of the body, the foundation of feelings, the foundation of the mind, and the foundation of the Dharma, what's true. And they really are the four ways in which we mindfully um, attend to our experience. So I will remind you of them as uh, we sit. Or Actually, what I'll probably remind you of are uh, the first three. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of Vedana, of feelings, and mindfulness of uh, mind. I can't really... Uh, say, ready, set, go, have an insight, because that, that has to just arise by itself, kind of like a surprise. I can actually tell you, be on the, out, be on the lookout for an insight, though. That would, be, that would work. And altogether, probably, it'll be uh, a little bit more than 15 minutes that we'll sit. I'll give you a new... Um, instruction every three or four minutes. So the first instruction is just let's compose ourselves. Sit in a way that's comfortable. You might now want to start by listening to the silence, having your body present itself to you when you feel the breath coming and going. Be with the breath. If there are compelling other feelings in your body, be with them.
If you can stay quietly and comfortably naming the breath, noticing it, then you can stay with about that. If some other physical sensation is compelling, some feeling in your body, you can name that. Let your attention rest there. You can also change your noticing and your noting from the the name of the experience like breath in and breath out to the quality of the experience. This is pleasant. This is unpleasant. This is a neutral moment. Why don't you try for a while to notice your experience through the lens of Vedana, through the lens of feeling tone. Not making a problem out of what it is, just noticing what it is. Whatever it is, the breath, some aspect of your body posture, some thought or feeling that's come into your mind. Pleasant, not so pleasant, whatever it is.
You could, if you like, shift your attention to the third foundation of mindfulness, contents of mind. Just a description of what's true of the mind. Mind at ease, mind full of thoughts, mind with not so many thoughts, mindful of sleepiness, interested mind, curious mind, bored mind. Just what's the climate of the mind? perhaps you'd like for the last several minutes that we sit to just let go of noticing and naming. Just sit. See if you can let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and be aware of that.
So I would like for us to have another small group interview now. What did you notice? How was that? What was your experience? So I'll take it from there, Barbara. Thank you very much. Uh, Barbara was, unless you had something way more, because otherwise I'll forget, because you just said so many good things, that um, uh, it was quite a different experience for Barbara than the concentration before, and uh, especially in the awareness of, uh, of paying attention to the coming of thoughts and uh, that there was a kind of way in which not unlike a move in Tai Chi where she could just move aside, she could move the thought aside without a lot of problem. And um, that in doing so, come back to the breath and that uh, the insight, I think that I, which is where I stopped her because I wanted to pick it up from there, is that when you go back and look for the thought, it isn't there. And it's such a dramatic uh, example of the emptiness of thoughts. They're made out of air, you know, or something. But there's just a thought, you know. And the, the, the way in which when the mind is tense, they take up a residence and seem to steer the mind and create often upset in the body. And there are some thoughts that are really important. This is not to say the thoughts have no significance. But... Uh, significant thoughts and uh, that are mandates for things to do, like uh, whatever, uh, they stay there. But the kind of uh, thoughts that that uh, come in and uh, kidnap the attention when the business at hand is uh, establishing equanimity in the mind, they mostly can be brushed aside. Not now. Come back later. If it's important, it'll come back. That was a really important thing to say. Thank you very much. What else did you notice? Yeah, Mark. Adam. Adam, sorry. This is this is Mark. This is Adam. Um, I found that when I was you know, expressing, you know, whether my feelings were good or bad, or I, felt I had, had a lot of tension, and um, when I expressed the judgment that it was bad, mm-hmm. it seemed worse. You know, like so. Oh, my my shoulders tense. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. So I tried to stay away from that, and then you know I went back to my breath. Mm-hmm. Those kind of judgments went away. And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So Adam was talking about uh, judgments that he had about feelings in his body, this or that was painful, uh, and if he if he noticed them as judgments, bad or good, that they got worse. Um, Actually, I think there's a very important uh, awareness that uh, uh, the thought that we have about something can often exacerbate. It's different from the awareness of unpleasant. Unpleasant keeps it, um, unpleasant notices what it is, but it doesn't exacerbate it with a uh, 
with a fear so much. It just is it's unpleasant. I'll tell you two stories about unpleasant that come to mind simultaneously. So I don't know which one I want to tell you first. But here, here is this one. This is a, this is one that really taught me a tremendous amount about how the mind works. It has to do with unpleasant feeling in the body, and it's truly a, almost a thirty-year-old story because it has to do with a very early retreat that I went to, and uh, about knee pain that I was determined to uh, sit through. I was, when I began my practice, over 40 years old, and uh, everybody was very young and just coming back from Asia and the Peace Corps and very hip, and I felt very old at 41. It's amazing to me now that I did, but I did. And anyway, one of the things I was determined to do was not look old, like sit on a chair, which is something that I now need to do. So I sat on the floor. By the way, you do not get any more enlightened on the floor <laughs> than on a chair, just for anybody to know about that. But it was the zeitgeist, and we all sat on the floor, and I was determined to sit on the floor. So I sat on the floor in a very crowded room with a hundred other people in a very hot summer in Oregon. And I thought that if the bell did not ring in the next minute, that I would explode, or that my knee would definitely explode, or that I would not walk again. Or, seriously, I'd have these fantasies, I would be the first retreatant in history to explode on the Zophic. <laughs> I cannot sit here another second. And uh, so my experience was I'm sitting and sitting thinking that that bell had got to ring. And finally, I heard the bell ring. I was so relieved. And I opened my eyes, and the bell hadn't rung. I had completely hallucinated. <laughs> because I had wanted it to happen so badly. This is serious. Because what I learned, so the story in brief, is that I then continued to sit. It's okay, I didn't embarrass myself by moving at least. I'm sitting. Close my eyes again, sit, sit, sit. Think to myself, that bell has got to ring. It's got to ring soon. It better ring soon. It didn't. Actually, I heard it clear as anything, but it didn't ring. Third time, sitting, 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 I'm going to die here. I said, okay, I'm not even getting my hopes up. (laughs) I am waiting to open my eyes to see that it has in fact rung. I open my eyes, I see people getting up from their Zafu, standing up, walking around, getting ready to go. Okay, it has finally rung. Now I can stand up. But in the meantime, I hope that I tell you the story in a way that you see that I didn't leap up off the Zafu. Probably 30 seconds passed, maybe a minute before I moved, during which time it was enough time for me to see that my knee did not hurt nearly as much as I thought it did that there was a certain amount of tension in my knee and I was happy to stand up and move it when I did, but that what I had experienced in the period of time before the bell and after it was the tension in the knee compounded by tension in the mind. It's never going to end. I'm never going to be able to stand up. I will humiliate myself. I will never be able to walk on this knee again in my whole life. That fear exacerbates the pain And so one of the things I learned about it was to try to be as um, uh, not judgmental about strong experience, not to label it pain or 
bad. That sometimes I, I've actually seen this in texts where they, they say if if you have really strong and uh, sensation in the knee, you could be labeling it in your mind pain, pain, pain. <laughs> but I think actually that actually frightens the mind. I would rather say to myself, um, tingling, pulling, uh, burning, unpleasant. They don't. They haven't made a judgment about it. It's tingling and it's burning and it's unpleasant. But, hey, that means I can deal with unpleasant. The other story that came up in my mind, which makes the point about dealing with unpleasant, is a little bit complex, so I have to tell it to you to see if I can uncomplex it. I taught a, a series of uh, three retreats, one on top of another, in a certain retreat center in the Catskills uh, in New York in the mountains a couple of years ago. And some people went home uh, when the retreat ended on Friday, and a new bunch of people came on Sunday night, and some people stayed on for two or three of the retreats. And at the end of the first or the second, I'm not sure, we had just done a lot of practice with pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and noticing the imperative that it starts to set up in the mind. <clears throat> when things are pleasant, the mind starts in to say, get some more of this, get some more of this, get some more of this, go get it. When things are unpleasant, the mind starts to strategize. When's the bell going to ring? How can I get out of here? What can I do? It doesn't sit quietly. That if you're able, if, if there is time for the mind or balance in the mind to say, this is really unpleasant or this is really pleasant, you don't have to do something about it. You could reflect, unless you can. So this is unless you can. So a retreat ended, and on the day that it ended, on a particular Friday, I suppose, uh, the previous day there had been a huge storm. And the storm had uh, taken out the electricity, the generator had fallen down, power lines were down all over the area. Since we were quite remote, there was a very little chance that they were going to fix it over the weekend, or that it would take some amount of time to get the power up. And the plumbing worked on power, and the refrigerators worked on power, and everything worked on power. So you can imagine that after some hours, the retreat center was not in its tidiest shape, and uh, the food was going to be limited in terms of you can't open and close the refrigerator because the remaining cool will come out of it. So the very next morning, we were eating breakfast um, and uh, eating breakfast on a Friday morning. I remember that. And uh, the retreat had ended so that we didn't have silence anymore. So we were talking to each other. And the 10 people or so who were staying over with me until the retreat began again were eating breakfast together, having some cold breakfast of whatever, and um, sitting in a cold room because the heat wasn't on. And... Uh, Finally, somebody said, this is really unpleasant. <laughs> this is unpleasant. Somebody else said, you know, it's really unpleasant. Somebody else said, let's go to Kingston for the weekend. <laughs> somebody else now getting the idea said, that's a very pleasant idea. <laughs> and so we got in cars and we went to Kingston and we got rooms in a hotel, in a motel. And we sat down for dinner that night in a warm restaurant with warm food. 
And someone said, this is really pleasant. <laughs> so it does not, the pleasant and unpleasant, I tell you that story. And then they fixed the plumbing and we went back the next day and started another retreat. I tell you that story, that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral means you grin and bear it or you grit your teeth or you tough it out, whatever. You say, this is what it is. And if you can fix it, you fix it. This is not about passivity. And it's not about endurance. And it's not about gritting your teeth. It's about not getting mad at the situation and not fighting with it. It's unpleasant. Can we go to Kingston? Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's go to Kingston. Had we not been able to go to Kingston... I, I, I'm pretty sure we would have spent a cold weekend eating cold food and probably laughing about it because in the sphere of unpleasant, there's plenty of other unpleasant in the world. You know, if your mind is relaxed enough, you can say we're eating cold food, but hey, half the world isn't eating food. So there's a, there's a context in which you can always put your experience, which is bigger than your particular story. That's another way in which I like to think about this practice of keeping a malleable mind. One of the words in the scripture text that comes up a lot is the quality of malleability in the mind as opposed to rigid. That the ability to make the mind larger than my particular story. This is my particular story. But hey, there's a world out there and everybody's got a story. And if I stay focused on my story... And I suffer a lot. If I look at the stories out there, it's likely to move me to a compassionate feeling, not only about other people, but about me as well. We're all having a hard time making it through. What else did you notice? And then we'll, we'll soon have lunch. But while you still remember what it was in that sitting, what did you notice? Yeah. My name's Lynn. Well, just um, I also noticed during the first part all this pain in my body. And I said, wow, you know, usually I don't notice that pain. And then I said, well, is that good or is that bad? And then I sort of sat with the pain, and all of a sudden I started noticing good feelings in my body also that I also Mm -hmm. don't notice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then I went on. So just to say it loud for the people in the back, Lynn was saying she noticed, first of all, Pleasant feelings, uh, unpleasant feelings in her body, she labeled as pain. And then after a while, she noticed that that she hadn't noticed before. And then after that, pleasant feelings in the body that she hadn't noticed before. And I think the biggest story is I noticed something I hadn't noticed before. And what I want to say is about really, this is a practice about beginning to be able to notice. Really, it's about seeing clearly and and. Uh, there are lots of ways. This afternoon, maybe we talk more about taking this into the world. I brought um, I brought today's newspaper, yesterday's, Friday's newspaper, actually, because one of my practices, one of the things I like to do is to bring whatever is the, the, the morning paper and the picture on it and say, you know, if you look at a picture, this is a picture of a man painting a float uh, for Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And it says underneath that uh, there will be 70 floats rather than the normal 200. So I was looking at the picture and I was thinking, depending on the, the climate of my mind, I can look at this picture and think to myself about everything that is, uh, everything that is unacceptable about the devastation of New Orleans and the response to it. 
all the way up to and including climate change, uh, and and feel moved and stirred and um, inspired to make a difference. It, I can also feel upset uh, if I'm not careful. I can also look at this and think human beings are amazing. You know, they come back no matter what and paint a float. Okay, they, they no matter what they come back and they say, "Listen, we're going to start up again." Human beings are really heroic. And I can think one one minute and one the next minute. And that to realize that, I, that if I look at the picture just as it is, I, I, when I bring them to class with me on Wednesday, I say to people, you have to look in the picture and then you have to really look in the picture. Then you have to really look in the picture and see what's the story under that. There's layers and layers and layers of story. And that... Somehow it's not about seeing it in the one way or seeing it in another way, but seeing it in all the ways that, that somehow, I guess the two, end, the two poles of the seeing is to see all the suffering and all the greed and delusion and aversion that's led to that. And on the other side, to see all of the amazingness about human beings, about life, about creativity, about being able to see things in a new way, about being able to say, okay, I paint a new float now, and I come back and I do it again, to see the heroism of the human mind and the confusion of the human mind. Somehow we have such a big spectrum of what we can do with human beings as minds with our experience, that we have that that potential as human beings to reflect uh, that we are different from other animals, I think, most in our ability to reflect that we are not necessarily, we are certainly guided and pushed around by impulses and instincts as are other animals. And it's good that we are, you know, I, I like having a limbic system that uh, causes me to jump out of the path of careening cars around the corner. And I don't think I'm any different than the deer in that moment that jump out of the path of careening car. I don't think the deer thinks to themselves, hmm, it's a car coming around the corner. What should I do now? But neither do I or you. I mean, something careens around the corner, you leap out. I need a limbic system, and so do you. We also need them to fall in love and, and, and to know when to be frightened, and they give us those kinds of clues. Uh, I think that we have the possibility as human beings to notice that our limbic system has been stirred in some way and then make a decision about how we should act, not in the case of careening cars, but in the case of being insulted or offended or falling in love or can make wise decisions about ourselves. We can think things over. I told that to somebody yesterday who uh, and asked me about whether I'd be part of a certain project, which sounded very interesting. And I, it was a very interesting project, and I said so. And then I said, well, I need a few days, so I have this new spiritual practice. And she said, oh, what's your you know, spiritual practice? What's your new spiritual practice? Sounds so exciting. I said, I have a spiritual practice called thinking it over. <laughs> because, I, you know, because my impulse is always to say, oh, great, you know. But it's a good thing to think things over, to see, really, should I take this on? Is now a good time? Is this the right time? And really, maybe the whole of spiritual practice is thinking it over. You know, I feel stirred in this way. Is it wise to respond at this moment? Maybe really what we're trying to do 
when we say, I am conditioning my heart to kindness. You know, that we, we are, I think, generally speaking, if we have healthy neurology, I think we are predisposed to kindness. I think we are, by and large, amiable animals. I think we are herd animals, unlike rhinoceroses that keep themselves alone. We are herd animals. We like to be in communities and families. We're very much actually um, conditioned to conformity because we don't want to be put out of the herd. And I actually think that. And I think, by and large, we are amiable and congenial with who we think is in our herd, and that the maybe what what another way to think about our job as people on this earth is to see that it's one big herd and that it's not you know, actually different herds. So how to be able to overcome what may be even a genetic sense of differentness and actually recognize that everybody is in our family. So we'll talk about that a little bit more this afternoon. Anybody had one more thought about their experience with mindfulness sitting? Because why do you remember it? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.